Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. I feel a little a little nauseated right now. I know. Um, I just, I thought that if it were going to bother you, it would have already. Mm, okay. You explain what we're talking about here because I need to put my head down for a moment. Sorry. So we got a beautiful, lovely gift from Rick and Steve from Maryland, and they sent us a Kindle version of Maniac Eyeball, The Unspeakable Confessions of Salvador Dali. So we're so excited yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, we love it. Yes, we do. Um, the cover, I was uh, surprised that you didn't mention or point out or... I didn't notice it until you pointed it I'm out. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's... Um, it triggered my... Uh, what is that called? Uh, tripo- tripophobia? Yeah. Is that what it is? I have this aversion to holes yeah. or clusters yeah. like lotus pods. We've talked about this before and a lot of people have it. We got a lot of comments from people yeah. saying, I suffer from that too. You're not alone. No. And um, so I think I'm probably going to be the one downloading this book. Yeah. I didn't mean to. Can you just read it to me? <laughs> oh yeah. No, that would be fun. Okay. Yeah. Fun yeah. Bedtime reading. Okay. Yeah. 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 Or just show me the artwork that. That is not that. Will not trigger me is is this like an irrational fear it, that's, what is it it's like it's a phobia yeah and we've talked about how it's uh, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense but mm-hmm. it might harken back to our uh, self-defense days like maybe patterns on certain animals that yeah. would trigger us and you know the the disgust and fear that we feel is to keep us safe and that's great um some fears are a little more irrational than others yeah, you know <laughs> my my sister janet has a uh terrible fear of her uh belly button coming undone <laughs> like, <laughs> like she's just gonna open up and fly around the room backwards and then land no. on the floor i think it's more of a everything coming out of her oh. kind of thing i'm not sure but she doesn't like anything belly button related like a thick stream of biological fluid something like that yeah just, just shooting out like a fire hose i'm uh, i'm 
I'm interested in people's irrational fears, though. I mean, the mm. more it doesn't make sense, the more interesting it is. And I don't think it's anything to be like ashamed of. No, no, no. no. Everyone's kind of got their own stuff. You got your own business in there. Yeah, I'm sure, not, you know, sure gonna do. mess around with that. No. You know what else I have a fear of? You know, those uh, cardboard boxes that uh, 12 packs come in. Yes. Like, you know, if you buy a 12 pack of say Heineken, the, that thin cardboard yeah. that the, the boxes are made out of. I have a fear of reaching inside of those. What? Yeah, I don't talk about it much, but there there actually is a sound reason why. Okay. A number of years ago. When you lived in Arizona? Yes. I knew it. How I did knew you? It. What is it? <laughs> because I can, I can just tell the way that you're leading into it. It's got something to do with something being inside of something and you can't see it. And so you must have reached your hand into something that you couldn't see the inside of. And that's that's a reasonable assumption, but that's not exactly right. What no. happened was the the way these boxes are constructed on the inside, there is a seam. Mm-hmm. And part of that seam had come undone and was hanging down a little bit on the edge, razor sharp. So I reached inside and I slit my finger open on it oh. like a serious paper cut. And the first thing I thought was that it was a rattlesnake. Sure. Because rattlesnakes hang out in my beer box in the fridge. That's what they do. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> not rational my, at all. No, but because because I cut myself on the cardboard now, whenever I reach inside of it, and this is like 15, 20 years later, I still worry that I'm going <laughs> to cut my finger on a piece of cardboard. Anyway. Do okay. you go first? I do. Okay. So there were only six of these things ever built. It was the very first American car to beat Ferrari on its own turf. It was once engulfed by flames. It caught on fire in in Daytona. This particular car was driven around Los Angeles by Phil Spector for a number of years, back when, you know, he was like in his 20s. And then it just disappeared for 30 years. Is it a ghost car? It's not a ghost car, but it disappeared for 30 years. Nobody knew where it was until it was discovered in a storage unit in Southern California. It had been locked up for 30 years. Nobody touched it. A one-of-a-kind vehicle created by Carol Shelby. Oh. Yeah, I knew that would light your little eyes up. <laughs> You're a big fan of the, of the Shelby Mustang. I do like the Shelby very much. Thank you. So Carol Shelby, he wanted to beat Enzo Ferrari, the uh, designer of, of course, the legendary Ferrari automobile. Now, he had beat him a few years prior as a driver. Carroll Shelby actually drove an Aston Martin, winning the um, World Sports Car Championship in 1959. Okay. But that wasn't enough for him. What he wanted to do was we, he wanted to out-design Enzo Ferrari. He wanted to design a car that would beat Ferrari one-on-one. I think it's really interesting that Enzo Ferrari made Ferraris and then Shelby's all like, I'm going to make cars too and I'm going to call them Shelby's. Yep. In 1963, uh, years after he had stopped racing, according to CNN, he wanted to to win as a designer. He modeled this uh, dream machine he had on a previous racer that he had developed, the AC Cobra Roadster. So this is how the Shelby Cobra Daytona Coupe prototype came in into being 
It was just made in this guy's uh, shop in Venice, California. So much was made that way. Yeah, just in the guy's garage. (laughs) But after he built this first prototype, he had five others built over in Italy, right under uh, Ferrari's nose, just kind of like rubbing his face in it a little bit. So in 1965, he raced again, and this time he won. He took first place. It's the first ever American racing team to do this. He took nine of 12 events in their in the class. Shelby had uh, achieved his dream. He had beaten Ferrari and the legend of the Cobra Daytona Coupe was born. Now, as I said, there were a total of six of them. Mm-hmm. This particular vehicle that we're talking about was the original, the only one that was built in the United States. Okay. And yep. that was the one that did the race and beat yep. the Ferrari. Mm-hmm. And okay. So that particular Shelby that was built in Venice had a chassis number, CSX 2287. And that is a magical number. It became like the holy grail of racing cars because this car disappeared for 30 years. Here's what happened. I was going to ask, but I figured that's what you were yeah, getting at. Yeah, that's where I'm leading. Yep. On November 6, 1965, the CSX 2287, it hadn't been raced for months, but the opportunity had uh, presented itself to be hauled out to the Bonneville Salt Flats to race the clock and write history. And so they took it out to the salt flats and they reached top speeds of 187 miles per hour, set uh, over four days, 23 national and international speed records. Shelby then decided he was, uh, he was going to retire the original Daytona. At this point, it was little more than just kind of an older uh, prototype. It had raced, it had caught on fire in Daytona. It didn't ruin the car, but it, you know, had been through some shit. Sure. So he sold it to Jim Russell, who was the founder of the toy company Russ Kits. And uh, he sold it, sold it for $4,500 in 1965. That doesn't seem like a lot. No, no. I don't think that he really thought there was a whole lot of value in it. Even in those days, $4,500 for a world-class race car seems like a pretty good price. But now here's where the story gets really weird. The Daytona soon ended up in the hands of Phil Spector, legendary music producer, now serving time for murder. Um, He was 26 years old at the time. So he buys this car and he just took like a can of paint and a paintbrush and he wrote on the door, scribbled all the car's records on the side of the door. And according to CNN, ridiculously exaggerating them, won the Le Mans, set all these records. And it's just written in yellow paint on the door. Yeah. And then after that custom paint job by Phil Spector, he started <laughs> driving it around Los Angeles. Uh, but because it was such a fast car, he was constantly being pulled over for speeding. Tickets were beginning to mount up ridiculous amounts of money. And his lawyer eventually suggested to Phil Spector that he get rid of the car. Couldn't he just not speed? Yeah, that would be good. But there was also um, there was also the fact that uh, it was not a comfortable ride. Because it was meant for racing. Exactly. Not for tootling about town. Yeah. It wasn't for your Sunday drive. And it overheated. It got hot as hell. Which is how it lit on fire. It may have been, okay. yes. Yeah, after just a few miles, it got really, really hot. It wasn't designed for, for long distances. Right. It's too bad Phil Spector didn't hold on to it a little longer. <laughs> and burn to a crisp? What? No. That's the kind of thing that I say, and then you just kind of let it sit I so you. that Let's you didn't pause. make it obvious. I'll, I'll pause. Okay. Here. It's too bad that Phil Spector didn't keep it a little bit longer. Okay. So... This was not your average uh, Sunset Strip cruiser. This was 
as uh, the CNN article that I'm uh, pulling from referred to an angry thoroughbred racer. Spectre wanted to keep the car and fix the issues. Okay. But he didn't. He, he decided not to. The cost was too high. And so he offered it to a scrapyard for $800. I, but I, uh, yeah. He just was going to scrap it for $800. You but, know, you could have sold it for a lot more had you not defiled it with your yellow paint. <laughs> yeah. But his bodyguard, whose name was George Brand, offered to buy it for 1000 And so he sold it to George Brand for $1,000. Good job, George. Proud of you. Brand gave the car to his daughter, Donna O'Hara. Did he hate her? I don't know what his motive was, but he, he gave it to his daughter. His daughter then just put it in a storage locker and left it there. Okay. And this was... She was like, thanks, Dad. I love it. Yeah. Oh, my God. What am I going to do with this? Yeah. It sat there um, from 1971 till 2001. Nobody knows exactly why she did that, but she kept it in the storage locker for 30 years Paying the rent every month for 30 years, nobody knows. Interest started to really mount around where this car had gone. Nobody knew where it was because it was just a quiet private transaction. Sure. Sooner or later, word got out that uh, it was sold to the bodyguard who gave it to his daughter, and she started receiving offers for it. She always refused the offers. Well, her dad got it for her. Anybody that came and presented themselves as being interested in the car, she actually became aggressive about it. Maybe she was tired of people coming and offering her money for her car. Well, a relative said she was a very, very private person. Okay. The first guy that tracked her down was a vintage car collector. He offered her $150,000 for the Cobra. Oh my goodness. That's a return on investment. It certainly is. Her uh, family member, her relative said, hey, take it. For God's sake, you can pay off your house. But she said no. And then once word got out that this guy had discovered the lost Cobra, car hunters began circling her. And uh, every time she rebuked them. And not politely either. She was rude about it. She was a bit eccentric. There was an offer for a half a million dollars. And that seemed to make her even angrier. And she began to get a reputation as being really kind of weird. Then Carol Shelby himself came to see the car. Oh, reunited and it feels so good. She wouldn't even open the door for him. Oh. She wouldn't even talk to him. She ran him off the grounds. The offers got up to $2 million. By this point, she's just standing on the lawn with a shotgun. Pretty much. <laughs> yep. Get the hell out of my yard, you car collectors. So as a result, the CSX 2287 remained untouched from 71 through 2001. Then, through the help of an attorney, a car collector, and retired neurosurgeon, Frederick Simon, finally managed to convince Donna O'Hara to sell him the car. The amount, he said, he would rather not disclose, but it's believed to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 million. He said it was persistence and timing, it was the right place, the right time, and it was a very realistic offer, he said. Back in 2008, he had founded an automotive museum in his uh, native Philadelphia, And he said that uh, the criteria for his collection, the car had to have significant history, original condition, American origin whenever possible, and of course, beauty. He said, at the time of the purchase in 2001, the only car that I didn't have in my collection was the Cobra Daytona Coupe. So I really wanted it very badly. 
Then the story turns really weird and dark. The collector said, I hate to tell it, this is a quote, this is a happy story, but the bottom of it is a downer. She, the owner, O'Hara, sold the car. Mm -hmm. The proceeds of the sale she willed to her mother, and then she went out and lit herself on fire. What? Yep. Where was there? What? According to Car and Driver magazine, two cops came upon a middle-aged woman the last hours of her life lying on what seemed to be like a bridal path of a park in Fullerton, California. It was about an hour before the sun came up. She was lying in the path. She was naked. Her clothes had totally been burned away. Her body was charred. Her hair was gone. She was burned from her head to her toes. She was tucked in a fetal position. And this was on Sunday, October 22nd, just days after uh, she had made the sale. They thought she was dead, but then one of them noticed her torso was moving and she was breathing. And he leaned down. He said, who did this to you? And her response was, just let me die. Oh, my goodness. Was there, I mean, were there money troubles? Did she have, I mean, was this some sort of, why? I'm, well, she why? just made $4 million, so I don't oh, I imagine know. she'd have money troubles. All I can think is that maybe this was something that she really didn't want to sell, but she needed the money. Mm. And so that's why she left it for her mom. And then, I don't know, you know, what happened in my head was that there was a lot of guilt, and, and the, but the, the money was necessary. Why? Was there any explanation? Well, while they were taking her in the ambulance, she just said in, in, in broken whispers that she had done this to herself. I mean, she had burns over 98% of her body. Oh I mean, how, how painful must that have been? Now, of course, they didn't know who she was at the time, but she had made her way to a park half a mile from her home, poured gasoline all over herself, set herself on fire in a concrete culvert under a bridge. But when the flames hit, you know, the body goes, whoa, and she starts running. Right. And she she was found about 30 feet away. Police never determined whether or not she had any help from anyone in doing this. It appears as though, for whatever reason, she wanted to end her life. She went to this culvert and then poured gasoline all over herself and lit a match and ran out of the culvert onto a bridal path where she collapsed and just burned until people found her. So why? Why did she do this? Everyone agrees. Everyone that knew Donna O'Hara agreed that her life had begun to fall apart the summer before. In August, she had broken off with her boyfriend. She had some real estate things that had gone bad. Mm. And then she was about to lose her job. After her death, co-worker said that um, she was a paranoid person. She thought people were out to get her. Mm -hmm. And she just went around in a rage that kept simmering and simmering. Obviously, there were a lot of things going on. Yeah, she was estranged from her parents. Uh, she was estranged from her entire family, according to relatives, every single member of her family. She tried to start a retail business with another woman, but that failed. It was just a, a series of setbacks and losses mm. that led up to this. And then she sold the car and did this. Now, when this happened, it, uh, it sparked a legal battle. This lasted for months. The aftermath of the sale was even more difficult than the sale itself, according to the collector who ultimately ended up buying the uh, the vehicle. It was challenged in court. Because she wasn't mentally fit to have made that call? Yeah, Phil Spector came out and said he had never sold it. 
and that he had just lent it to somebody. Listen, and Phil want, Spector, yeah. no one cares what you have to say ever. You're a garbage human. Shh. Shh. Yeah, he claimed that uh, he had never actually sold the car to his bodyguard, but just gave it to him for safekeeping uh-huh. for 30 years. Uh-huh. So everybody wanted a piece of this car. Oh, I was just thinking that I would like a T-shirt that says something along the lines of, shut your trap, Phil Spector. <laughs> Phil Spector, you're a garbage person. Well, it's difficult to say how much this car is worth today. It's. Uh, I think, you know, that's always debatable. I guess however much someone is willing to pay for it. It was it was sold for about $4 million, they think, what, 18 years ago or mm-hmm. so. The other five Daytonas, those produced in Italy, are in the hands of private collectors. One sold at an auction in 2009 for $7.5 million. Whoa! So it's pretty safe to assume that the CSX 2287 would get a um, significantly higher price since it is the first prototype. Right, but it has been painted. That's that's true. By Phil Spector. <laughs> so. yeah. uh, it's the absolute last Daytona to have been in competition. And unlike the others, it still is in its original state. No parts have been replaced. It hasn't been repainted with the exception of Phil Spector's scribbling on the door. And today, 55 years after it was built, the Shelby Cobra Daytona Coupe prototype finally sits in a, in a, in a safe place, a museum founded by its current owner in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Yep. So cool. I would, I would like to see that yeah, very I would, much. I would too. Yeah. I think one of the coolest things that, that I've experienced was a uh, museum in uh, Florida. I think it was in Stewart and it was like a vending machine car museum. Oh so yeah. I've you seen, could I've go that. to the computer and punch in the car that you wanted to see and it would vend that car to the front for you. That's and incredible. it was just the neatest thing. And you, there were some incredible cars that um, I'd never had the chance to see in person before. So I was jazzed about it. Uh, I think it was actually called the Elliott Museum. The Elliott Museum. And oh, I remember you talking about yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, it was so cool. You want to see what the uh, 64 Shelby looks like? You know I do. That is not the prototype. That's one of the other five. Okay. The prototype is a little dustier and has yellow paint on the driver's door. There are no photos of it? Yes. There are? Yes. Show it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it kind of looks like a like a tick. It's got that fat back end. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. A, But so cool. You can definitely see how that is specifically designed for aerodynamics and Phil Spector sucks. Killing people and, and ruining beautiful vehicles like that. I mean, yeah, he was he was 26 at the time, but what a douchey thing to do. It's look super at this, douchey. Look at this car that I have. Yeah. Look at look at how fast it is. I don't even care enough about it to not defile it with my gross handwriting. Oh, my hair's so fun. There's a reason you didn't hear this at the start of the podcast. This is That Thing in the Middle. For today's thing in the middle, we're taking advice from the 1950 home economics book, Tips to Look After Your Husband. These are important, ladies. Listen up. Number five, have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, and make sure it's delicious and on time. Number four, clear away the clutter. Make one last trip through the main part of your house just before your husband arrives, gathering up school books, toys, paper, etc. Then run a dust cloth over the table. Your husband will feel he has reached a heaven of rest and order and give you a lift too. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, listen to him. 
You may have things that you need to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Number two, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh looking. Be a little gay and a little more interesting. His boring day may need a lift. And number one, make him comfortable. Have him lean back in a comfortable chair or suggest he lie down in the bedroom. Have a cool or warm drink ready for him. Arrange his pillow. Offer to take off his shoes. Speak in a low, soft, soothing and pleasant voice. Allow him to relax and unwind. 1950 was weird. Yeah. 1950 angers cat. <laughs> I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece if you put your pants on i'll give you some fresca and when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right it's a lot easier to manage them Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. 
Greenlight.com slash oddities. The Box of Oddities. It's not for everyone. Hi, Kat and Jethro. I am traveling in Italy this summer. Ugh, so jealous. My friend and I explored just recently the Aragon Castle, which is lovely. Stop it. We went to one area that was called the Nun Cemetery. And I don't know if you have covered this topic already, but the process of preparing a corpse to add bones to an ossuary is totally fucked up. (laughs) They put the dead corpses on these stone toilet-looking things that collect all the juices. Oh, jeez. Any hoozle, thought it would be a fun topic for you guys to cover, and I hope I don't sound dumb trying to explain it. Thanks so much for the amazing podcast and all that you do for your fans. Ciao, she says. That was from Danielle. Thanks, Danielle. Danielle, I'm so jealous of you. Minimally happy for you. Mostly just jealous. We want to go to a nun cemetery. Yeah. In Italy. And say things like ciao. Ciao. Anyway, your turn. Go. I love a fun story. And I was going through some of the social meds the other day and someone had sent something to me and they called me their favorite skeptic. <laughs> and I've never really thought of myself as a skeptic per se. I mean, I tend to question things, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's important. Yeah, well, sure, sure. I tend to just really want to believe what I want to believe. Mm, sure. Somebody referred to us as a contemporary version of Scully and Mulder. I take that as a huge compliment. And as we should, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, no. Um, the thing is, far fewer shoulder pads. We got to bring back the 80s shoulder pads. I agree. And the big- I need a giant blazer. I wish I had a dollar for every time you've said that. <laughs> so I thought it would be fun to talk about a few things uh, that have been examined and... Uh, Okay, let's go. Oh, okay. Things that um, have been disproven. Is that what you're... you're that's, gonna that's correct. Crush all my I'm dreams. I'm going to squash them. Ugh. And we're going to start with the Fiji mermaid. Oh, well, that's fake. Everybody knows that. Yeah, well, yeah. they didn't. That's true. They did not. No. This was a P.T. Barnum thing. That's exactly right. Uh, the story goes like this. P.T. Barnum uh, came across this uh, remarkable tale of a naturalist who had obtained a mermaid. And Barnum found the guy and tried to talk him into displaying the mermaid, but came away empty-handed. But eventually the guy was won over by the public demand for uh, the curiosity uh, that is uh, the mermaid. Of course, stories of mermaids have been around forever, and there are some really interesting accounts of uh, men on the seas claiming that they saw human women tops with fishy bottoms right. and, and shiny wet breasts. So um, I think it's really interesting that uh, they made note to point out the breasts, which leads me to believe that that was kind of one of those I've been at sea for too long moments. Well, yeah, it was theorized by many that um, what was actually seen by these deprived seafarers in many cases were sea cows or manatees. Manatees! If If a manatee's looking good to you, (laughs) you've been at sea too long. There's something going on. Though I will say they are precious and all the things that we should strive to be. Manatees or horny seafarers. Sure, whatever. Okay. Both, either, I don't care. So this was an object 
that P.T. Barnum was was after. And it was actually the torso and head of a young monkey sewn to the back half of a fish. And it was a common feature at sideshows. It was presented as the mummified body of a mermaid, which who thought that mermaids would look like that? No one. Um, They were, yes, showing us this thing and saying, isn't this amazing? Ooh, but also crushing dreams. This is not the sea siren that you are hoping to fish bang. This is some (laughs) sort of weird monstrosity and you're not going to like it. That was part of P.T. Barnum's genius is he gave you this great story, Mm -hmm. but it's not quite the way you thought it was. Right. So you have that moment of going, oh, well, it's not. And so the... uh, Suspension of disbelief is maybe a little easier because it's not exactly what you had imagined. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So the original uh, had fish scales uh, with animal hair on its body and its mouth was open and its teeth were bared and it had a uh, right hand or paw that was kind of tucked in uh, to its cheek and uh, the... Mermaid got its name because it was supposedly caught near the Fiji Islands in the South Pacific. Eventually, P.T. Barnum got this monkey fish and put it on display. And it was making good money because, it, you know, he acquired it for little to nothing. And you don't have to feed it. It's already <laughs> yeah, dead. Right. You know, you don't have to pay it. You just, nah, you just lug it around with you in your suitcase. Uh, it's a suitcase full of lies, but you can carry it. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, and so at one point, Barnum was allowing customers to view the mermaid at his museum at no extra charge, which meant that the ticket sales for the museum had tripled. Yeah, and he was a genius at that sort of thing. Right. One of the things that he did that I thought was just brilliant was when he was exhibiting who he said was the nurse of George Washington Mm. and that this woman was 125 years old or whatever. Word started to get around that uh, this she was not what he was claiming she was, that she was not the nurse. You know, this was scuttlebutt that was starting to circulate and so he wanted to get out in front of the story so he leaked anonymously to the press that this was not really george washington's nurse it was in fact a hoax it was a robot (laughs) i remember you saying that now oh my god so the press picked up on it but he steered the story in a different direction he was manipulating the press so that people wouldn't find out the real crime Magnetic people. That's a thing, right? Uh, A seven-year-old from Serbia, according to uh, sources, has an apparent ability to attract other things to his body. Is this the guy that like spoons will stick to his face? Spoons are very commonly the thing used with magnetic people. Uh And human magnetism is a popular name for the alleged ability for some people to attract objects to their skin. And they're often called human magnets. In fact, a 42-year-old man from Georgia broke the world record for the most attractive man on the planet and not in like a super sexy saucy (laughs) pants kind of way. Uh His name is Etibar and he 
is called the Magnet Man. He broke his own Guinness World Record for having the most spoons stuck on the human body. That was a record that he created for himself of in course. December of 2011. Uh, it was 53 spoons, My in case goodness. you are curious. Some of the other items that he and the other magnetic people are alleged to have stuck to them are glass, porcelain, Wait, wood, or plastic. See, that just flies in the face of magnetism. See, that's the thing. Mm. Um, and there is no evidence that anything is actually magnetic in any way at all. There is a high likelihood that these people have a very smooth, sticky skin. They may have perspiration issues. They may have oily skin. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes you'll see the videos or photos of these people and they're leaning back slightly with the spoons resting on their chest. Oh, like it's not a thing. You, if you, you really, silly pants. If, <laughs> if you really believe you're magnetic, climb to the top of the George Washington Bridge and stick yourself to a girder hanging over the river. Or just lean forward with those spoons. Yeah, that would work too. It'd probably take less time. And very often the spoons are strategically placed. So like they're spoon end up and the bottom end is kind of resting on, let's say, a protruding belly or something of that nature. That's not very impressive. It's really Really not. It's a chubby guy with a beer gut covered in cutlery. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm in, but <laughs> don't call yourself Magneto. Um, that's the thing is that it, it pretty much proves that, that, that magnetism plays not a part in this at all mm. when you're saying that porcelain also sticks to you. Right. It's just you've got sticky skin. And there have been studies done on these people who, and they think that they may also have more elasticy skin. So maybe mm. their skin won't... Um, their skin will give way a little bit more. So if the spoon is pulling, maybe their skin will allow it to pull a little bit more than maybe taut skin would. So yeah, maybe they do have neat skin, but that's not as fun as Magnet Man. I don't know if it's fun skin, if it's sticky. How fun can sticky skin be? I guess it depends on what you're doing with it. Are you in one of those little phone booths full of tornado money? Um, That's a great idea. Right. Why the hell don't they exploit Just that? Pop, 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 like that. Maybe it's a dietary issue. You think? That makes them all sticky. Too much syrup. Once they get all that syrup in them, yep. they get all antsy in their pantsies. All nimbly bimbly. Now, this is one of my favorites. And I actually considered doing a whole episode about this woman and the this situation. But, um, well, anyway, here we go. Mary Toft. She was an English woman from Surrey. And in 1726, London, uh, she hoodwinked the countryside and many very respectable people, police, uh, scientists, royalty, etc. Hang on. I want to know where the term hoodwinked came from. That's a great question. I think it's got to do with... Okay, so the gallows, they put a hood on you. Ooh, that's and a, maybe yeah. what you do is you raise up your hood and you give them a little wink before you disappear from the gallows. And that's that's how you trick them. Okay. It's tricky. Origin of the term hoodwinked. It never works when I found you... this on the web. According to Merriam-Webster, 
hoodwink once meant to cover the eyes of someone such as a prisoner with a hood or a blindfold. Like at the gallows? Hoodwink was also once a name for the game of blind man's bluff. The 16th century term soon came to be used figuratively for veiling the truth. You're fooling somebody. Oh, that's interesting. So anyway, uh, she was giving birth to rabbits. I did an episode on this. Oh my God, you did. Yeah, yeah. She claimed that... uh, I do remember that now. That was a long time ago. That's why I had this saved on my phone. GD. (laughs) It was a long time ago. Give us a refresher course. All right. Well, anyway, she told people that she could give birth to rabbits. Yeah. And uh, so she was 17. She married the wool textile guy. And every morning she would labor in the fields. She had long, grueling days. But when she was 25, she gave birth to a monster. Uh, Doctors came to investigate. And there were a bunch of uh, small animal bits. I can't believe I forgot that you did this. She was putting dead rabbits in her hoo-ha. Yeah, and claiming that they were being born from her. That's right. It's a dead rabbit hoo-ha not, issue. Not just rabbits, though. Like bits of cats. And wow. at one yeah. point, they she birthed three legs of a tabby cat and one leg of a rabbit. Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing? Well, that's the thing is uh, when I was reading about this, it actually could be about something much bigger than obviously mental illness but she claimed that she'd been startled by a rabbit while she was working in the field and that was playing into this idea that you could have a maternal impression on your baby Mm -hmm. that was a popular theory yeah i guess there was a person who uh they they gave birth to a child with birth defects and they said they had been startled by an elephant. So they had like an elephant man kind of baby. Mm, and mm-hmm. that's horrible. Yeah. Anyway, so she was caught while she was under observation because she had uh, tried to hire a kid to bring her a rabbit so she could jam it in her insides. So it was discovered that the rabbit births weren't real. And, but according to her confession, the pain involved in birthing these rabbits was real. I imagine it for was. For sure. Well, at certain points, these rabbits were inside of her for weeks. Wow. I, I don't remember that part. So this is according to Hogarth to Rowlandson Medicine in Art and 18th Century Britain. I don't I don't think I saw that. I don't I don't know if I reported that in, in my version of this. She kept them in her vajayjay. Her vajayjay. <laughs> for weeks. Dead rabbits. Yeah. And animal parts. Yes. And it's remarkable that she didn't die of some sort of bacterial some infection. Septic deal. And then she's birthing out these, like, in some cases, three, four week old rabbits that have nails. And, <gasps> you know, at the one of the ways that they investigated and discovered that this wasn't possible, which I mean, come on. But um <laughs> yeah, was, was that the the dead rabbits that she was birthing had like hay in their bellies. So obviously huh. they weren't nomming inside her and you know getting hay it's a miracle the angle from this atlas obscura article that i was reading is that some people are revisiting this because rabbits were kind of a symbol of uh wealth and royalty and such at the time and that mary was being used as some sort of pawn 
to bring attention to the terrible state that these peasants were living in at the time. Hmm. And that she didn't even really, she wasn't the mastermind of this weird animal bits birth um, that other people had arranged it, which is crazy. How do you, how do you convince somebody to put dead rabbits in their cooter? You know, I've seen some terrible, terrible things on the infra webs and you can convince people to do just about anything. It is upsetting. There's probably a website for probably rabbits in your cooter.com. Probably there is hashtag ouch. Yeah. I'm so sorry that I forgot about your story. It was a hundred episodes ago, so. All right. We knew this day would come. I know. I know. <laughs> <That> <laughs> one of us is going to repeat a topic. Well, we knew it was going to be me, obviously. <laughs> I don't remember shit. I have the worst memory. I'm all like, what did we do for lunch yesterday? Mm. Mm. Sorry about that. That's okay. I care about you deeply. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> Is that it? So my last story is about the kidnapping of Miriam, the bank owner's daughter, uh, in the 1920s. So uh, she no, was. Wait, it, no, <laughs> I did that one too. You knucklehead. <laughs> no, that's it. I'm done. Great stuff. I love a good humbug. I love a good uh, a good hoax, which is why I've always been such a huge fan of Andy Kaufman. You know, blurring the line between reality and fiction. See, I don't, I've never been a big fan of that kind of thing. I think that there's enough interesting going on that I don't, I don't, I don't want to be tricked. I don't find that to be amusing or like, do you remember that movie that you made me watch about the thing, uh, the New Jersey devil? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you were all like, oh, this is so weird, right? It's like a documentary about the, and all of a sudden at the end, I was like, this is not real. And you were like, no, it's not. (laughs) And I was like, all right, we're breaking up. And yeah, yeah, no, I understand. (laughs) I understand. You you don't like to be tricked, but it's fun to watch other people get tricked. Oh no, no, (laughs) don't like that at all. This is why I have trust issues. Andy Kaufman summed up his whole career. In a Rolling Stone article um, in from 1980, where he said, "Even when I was a kid, I wanted to have a TV special where a guy on a tightrope looked like he fell to his death, and then everybody the next day would be saying, do you see that guy die on Kaufman's show?'" <laughs> I love that. It's performance art. I yeah, it. it's also a little sad, rather, right? I mean, isn't it a little sad to you? Sad. Some people might say, I say brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, our our live show is happening in just weeks now. Tickets are available for uh, San Francisco, Boston, Charlotte, and Nashville by going to our website, theboxofoddities.com. I know that there are some VIP tickets left for some of the shows, not for all of them. Someone has reached out to us about uh, another show that they're interested in us uh, doing. And so this, I mean, we're, we're, we're very excited about this prospect and Mm. uh, maybe going back to my favorite city, but we're not going to, we're not going to get into it. No, not at this point. No, too too much, too much, too, too much too soon right now. Also, don't forget the premium channel. All the details are on our website, theboxofoddities.com. The Box of Oddities, it is uh, extruded 
from the internet what? and it plops on your phone. Oh, did I tell you about the other day I was talking to a customer and instead of writing, I expect something, I wrote, I excrete something. <laughs> I can't remember what I was saying exactly, but mm-hmm. the fact that I um, mixed up the word expect and excrete was to me hilarious. <laughs> I don't know how they felt about it, but yeah, it happens. Oh, yes, you were saying. We will see you on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, a beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Okay. Oh, like that. Yeah. Ma. 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 Now I'm going to probably leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts if you like this podcast can we recommend another one It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.